This podcast was produced and recorded by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church of Ocala, Florida. This is a collection of sermons and talks by our founding pastor, Ted Strawbridge. These recordings were salvaged from cassette tapes dating back to the 90s. We hope you enjoy. After all these weeks, I still have a hard time finding Daniel in my Bible. That's terrible. (laughs) Daniel chapter 9. Follow along, if you will, as I read uh, God's holy word. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings and our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord your God, our God, is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift light 
about the time of the evening service, evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, but in the middle of that seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And one who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Obviously that makes perfect sense to you and to me. <clears throat> Don't need an explanation here. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we come before you and uh, cry out to you like little children. Uh, we need your help. We need you to come by your Holy Spirit and teach us. Father, we pray that you would guide our hearts, that you would enable us to worship, that you would enable us to hear a word from the Lord. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ryan, do me a favor. Will you close that door back there? <clears throat> I don't know why that is, but and of course you guys can't see it. But uh, when I stand up here, if that door is open, it, it, I turn and it catches my eye. I think somebody's coming out or something or other. <clears throat> I want you to know the worship service has not really gone all that well so far. Uh, I mean, you've heard me laugh at myself up here, so you know it's hard not to sit out there and just laugh. We've done a lot of things out of order, and things just haven't really functioned right. The good news is, we're about 10 minutes ahead of time, so I can preach for like 50 minutes, and we'll still get out of here on time. <clears throat> um, man, find your insert. And uh, let me give you something to hang on to. In terms of review, we've seen that Daniel 1 through 6 tells biographical stories that tell the original audience Daniel is to be trusted because Daniel is the kind of man who serves God and God alone. Daniel is the kind of man who has power to, to, to tell visions and dreams and insight. We've already seen him do that. And we've seen how Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, how that dream ties Daniel 1 through 6 to Daniel 7 through 12. So what would be entirely complicated and utterly unable for us to understand begins to fall in place like a crossword puzzle or like a regular jigsaw puzzle. So it's, it's very easy to say Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, these dreams that Daniel had, they tie in to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, there are the four kingdoms. You remember that? We've, I've given you a handout. You've seen it all before. And those kingdoms fall in order without a gap. That is, Babylonian will, Babylonia will have an empire. And, and then the Medes and the Persians will come, and they will have an empire. 
and then the Greeks will come and they will have an empire and then the Romans will come and they will have an empire and then in Daniel chapter 2 you see on the statue without any gap in time that a rock comes out of the mountain a rock not hewn by hands and this rock who is Christ crushes the kingdom of Rome and establishes the kingdom that will never pass away uh, last week uh, uh, somebody came to worship here and they left and they weren't all that impressed they, they were a visitor and it was a great comment it was a family member and uh, and so the, the member here called me and said, I want you to know how much the sermon meant but to me, but it was kind of hard to understand. This is what they got out of it. What they understood when I was yelling and screaming about life as a two-faced reality, uh, they, this visitor sort of interpreted as if, you know, when we sneeze down here on earth, something happens up in heaven. And I don't mean to say that. That, of course, is not true. But I can tell you this much. I don't err. That is not my problem. My problem is not thinking that earth and heaven are too closely acquainted. My problem is thinking that nothing happens on earth matters or corresponds to what's going on in heaven. I tend to fall into that. So day by day by day, I sort of slide through the week and I start to act like more and more and more like what happens in this world happens because Ted does it. Instead of because there's an almighty God who has a plan for every single thing that happens. Uh, if you brought somebody out of Nairobi, I don't know anything about Nairobi, but uh, it's South America. If you brought a native and, and you took them and you dropped them in the middle of Times Square and, and they just stood there for a minute and all of a sudden all this stuff is going on and they see these huge metallic animals coming by and, and there's these yellow ones and people wave at the yellow ones and then all of a sudden the, the side opens up and people climb in and it eats them up and it goes away forever. And, and they see other people running down these, these holes that go down into the earth and, and they get on these long things and they go away and they never come back. You see, that native would look at all this stuff and, and probably panic. You know, something like Crocodile Dundee, of course, but, you know, Crocodile Dundee had been exposed to Australia, knew some things. But still, you see, the perspective would be that life was just total chaos and entirely out of control. The fact is, everything in life is moving towards randomness. Every scientist worth his salt knows that everything in our entire universe is moving towards greater and greater increasing randomness. And the old theory that science was built upon order and structure and unity is coming more and more into question and people are beginning to say, you know, life's not really that ordered and that structured. In fact, a lot of things happen that we just absolutely cannot explain. And it looks at times like total chaos. What I want to present to you this morning is this, that Christianity offers very simple but potent understanding reality of life. Practically, practically, uh, this ought to grab you every day. I'm going along life, life's okay. Hey, I'm going to get to go play golf. Well, the thing is, I've got to finish my yard. And I got some little bit of mowing left to do in the yard, so I mow the backyard and I leave the gate open, and all of a sudden our dog is gone. Now, now who can describe this chaos? I had a great golf game planned. And now Lucy's gone. And the whole world's turned upside down. 
And you know, a father's a really popular guy. But you lose a dog, <laughs> and all of a sudden the whole family turns on you like animals, and they come at you and they got this scale, and there's you, and there's the dog that you lost. And it's really close. Okay? Uh, but really, life is more chaotic than even that. It can turn in an instant. And you look at the chaos and you wonder, what is the explanation? What's going on? Lucy was one thing. We're packing to go to the beach. This is Mary Lou's family's big beach vacation. She's not here, so I'll say, you know, I tolerate it at best. Uh, beach is just, you know... Uh, the good thing is the kids absolutely love it. And so you go for the kids. Man, it's... Ugh. Um, if I were in danger of the fires of hell, I think it'd look like New Smyrna Beach. Okay? <clears throat> Don't tell her I said any of that, please. So we're all packing up to go to the beach. You know how... Uh, I don't know how things function in your family. Uh, in, in my family, when I was a child, uh, we had seven children... And my dad was always late coming home and he was always finishing up and I could go down to the quick serve and sit on my bicycle and wait for him to round the corner. And when he would come home and we'd be going on vacation, he would come around the corner and I would pedal home and throw the bike in the garage. Well, we didn't even have a garage. Just throw my bike, as I usually did, and, and get in the car and everything was loaded and we left just like that. I don't know what talent or gifts or brilliance my mother had that she could function that way. She could make that entire thing. Well, my family doesn't do that. And, and I'm sure it's not, you well know it's not Mary Lou's fault. But somehow we're never ready to go on vacation. So the other day, we're packing up and having this big trauma, and, and life is sort of going along, and she says to me, look, I want you to do two things. Pack yourself, take care of Aunt Charlotte. Can you handle that? Yes, dear, I think I can handle that. Okay? So life's going along okay. I pick up this coat hanger, and I got this coat hanger in my hand, and I'm moving across, and I go down to pick up Aunt Charlotte. And I come about halfway up, and I realize I still got the coat hanger, and Aunt Charlotte's on her way back down to the ground. And so I'm going down with her, and of course, the only thing I can get a hold of is her feet, which makes it worse, because I stopped her feet. You know, in the back of her head, smack! onto the floor. Well, you know, people drop babies all the time. You know, it's just, you know, it's a rough world out there. It's not... But on the back of her head, there's this baseball-sized bruise sort of thing that starts to appear, and these little pinpoint things where the blood vessels are broken. Now, uh, to end that story, we, we uh, took her to a doctor and let him... By the time we got to the doctor, she was life was all merry and gay, and she was okay, and I didn't kill her, and Lucy's home, and I'm still the father of my family, and I don't need to come live with y'all. But at any rate, what I want you to see, that for you and for me, life can look extremely chaotic. And if we didn't have a trust in a purposeful God who is bringing about purpose in history you and I wouldn't dare get out of bed in the morning. Because who knows, if I had known that that was going to be the morning I was going to drop in Charlotte, or if you knew that when you walked out this door, God forbid, one of your children was going to run in the street and get run over by a semi, you wouldn't come. You would have stayed home. But you don't know that kind of stuff. And so life just looks 
can look at times like it's just endless, total chaos. What I would propose to you this morning is, is that you look at what God is doing in history. What God is doing to establish His kingdom. Come with me again to Daniel chapter 9. on your little inline thing. I want you to understand the kingdom in a way that makes you plead with God. Understand the kingdom in a way that makes you plead with God. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. From Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promises one who had come from the seed of woman who would destroy the serpent. Everything in the Old Testament is written in order to look forward to the coming Messiah. The prophets spoke very clearly of one who would be a redeemer. And a Redeemer was going to come, and He was going to reestablish Jerusalem. He was going to restore Jerusalem. He was going to usher in the kingdom. There was, Joel says, the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on people. These are things that the Old Testament people looked forward to. The whole context of the Old Testament is looking forward to a coming of the kingdom, a new kingdom. They look forward to the day of the Lord that they saw as a great time of judgment. They look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Daniel, you remember now, was deported under Nebuchadnezzar, served under Nebuchadnezzar, and then served under Belshazzar. And then in 538, he tells Belshazzar, Tonight you've been weighed in the scales and you've been found wanting. And that very night Belshazzar is slain and Cyrus, or Darius, the king, the head of the Medes and Persian Empire comes in and he overthrows Belshazzar and he takes over and he sets Daniel up. Now Daniel is watching all this stuff and he's not just letting time go by. He's looking for the coming of the kingdom. And he reads in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, where the prophet Jeremiah had foretold that the exile would come even to Judah and that the Judahites would be exiled for 70 years. Daniel thinks, man, let's see. We started at the deportation and he starts counting down and he goes 10, 20, 50, 60, hey, this is it. The kingdom is coming. Do you understand that Daniel longed for the kingdom? That he was in exile and he longed for God to come and restore Judah and Israel? And he's reading in the prophet Jeremiah and he says, hey, this thing's supposed to be 70 years. Now what I want you to see is this. Daniel does not just say, Hey, God said 70 years. 70 years almost up. Come on. Let's go. I'm ready. Lord, you said 70. 
Come on. You see, Daniel pleaded and begged and confessed and got in sackcloth and ashes. Why is that? Why is that? Because Daniel understood the coming of the kingdom in such a way that he longed for it to be here. He longed for it to be here. Uh, the word of the Lord is not written to be uh, just a record of history. It's written for us to be a model. When Jesus came, what did Jesus come preaching? He came preaching repentance and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and said the kingdom of heaven is now. Let me read to you just... I don't want to do that. I'm changing it. I'm not going to stir you up with this. Uh, Let me simply point out to you, instead of giving you the complicated stuff, that what we saw in Daniel chapter 2 was empires, we already went through this, Babylon, Medes and Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the coming of the kingdom. When Jesus came, Jesus ushered in the new kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom is now. Do you remember Peter when he stands up after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church? and people spoken in tongues and flames of fire have been on their heads, what does he say? What does he say? He says, this is what the prophet Joel spoke of when he looked ahead to the coming of the kingdom and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This day is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The Holy Spirit is given to us let me, let me read to you from Ephesians. Passage we read this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. What I want you to see in that passage is the Holy Spirit, who was spoken of by the prophet Joel, is given to us as deposit, guaranteeing our future inheritance, but establishing right now that we have the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. You remember when the the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees are accusing Jesus of doing all kinds of evil things? 
And Jesus says to him in his healings, and Jesus says to him, but if you see me drive out demons, then you know the kingdom has come upon you. What I want you to see this morning is that Daniel longed for the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom came when Christ came and he established the kingdom. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that the kingdom is now, that the kingdom is here. Over and over in the New Testament, the kingdom is talked about in present tense. When Christ had made purification for sins, when he made atonement for the people, those are all parts of kingdom realities. And you, like Daniel, need to understand the kingdom reality in a way that makes you plead with God. You see, Daniel saw the coming of the kingdom in the prophet of Jeremiah, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he understood 70 years are going to happen, and then the kingdom's supposed to be here. And he longed for the kingdom so much that he got down and he prayed and he confessed and he got in sackcloth and in ashes. And you need to understand the reality of Christ's establishment of the kingdom in such a way that when you face the chaos of the world out there, you get down on your knees and you immediately begin to pray and confess and to plead with God in sackcloth and ashes. We saw Daniel's vision when Jesus came up on clouds of glory. The Ancient of Days was seated and Jesus was brought before the throne and given glory and honor and splendor and power. That passage relates to Philippians chapter 2 when Jesus, after he had humbled himself and died on the cross, was exalted to a high place and seated at the right hand of God and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. What I want you to begin to understand is that everything in the Old Testament looked towards the coming kingdom. When Christ came, he established the kingdom. And we need to understand that in such a way that when you see the chaos in life, you want to get down on your knees and say, Lord, I believe that you're established king and ruler over all things. And when I see the chaos that's going on around me, I want to get down and call out to you and ask you, why are these things happening? Why is this stuff going on? You know, if Jesus is king, why does stuff happen all the time? Do you watch the news? You see the cholera epidemic that begins in the Rwandan people? And even if every nation set out right now to do everything it could, before we could make any difference, 30,000 people will be dead. And it shows a news clip, and you have this volunteer, and he's screaming at people, he's so frustrated. Would you get the bodies? Because if they don't drag the dead bodies off the truck fast enough, more bodies are coming. And this, this poor guy is just dragging bodies and blankets and hurling them on the truck and working as hard as he can and screaming at everybody else. And finally they stop to interview him. And he says, it's just so hard. If you stop for a minute, more bodies stack up. And more people are exposed. And finally he breaks down and he can't even talk. 
and tears are running down his face. And he turns away from the camera and he says, it's just so damn hard. You see, you need to see that stuff going on. Don't come here in a coat and tie and a nice dress and pretend like life is merry and gay. You need to understand the world that we're living in and see it and hold it and touch it and look up and say, wait a minute, Jesus is supposed to be king. What's going on? See, Daniel looked and he saw the 70 years was about up. But there wasn't any way there was going to be a restoration. And he said, Lord, what's going on? I want you to see again also that we, I think we run too quickly to Romans chapter 9. You know Romans chapter 9? That is, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau and you're the potter. I mean, he's the potter and you're the pot, so be quiet. You know, that's our solution to, to every question about, you know, why does God do these things? Well, you don't know. Be quiet. What I want you to see, while I believe Romans 9 is true, what I want you to see over and over and over in the Scripture, they don't just run to Romans 9 and say, be quiet. They work real hard to establish God's righteousness and His hope. And so, in the second part of this passage, you get Daniel's prayer over and over and over, and he says, Oh, Lord, we have not been faithful. You have been righteous. We have sinned. We are in exile because we're in sin. You have been righteous. You have been righteous. In Ephesians chapter 1, we began with, verse 9, that says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That verse in Ephesians chapter 9 tells us that God has a purpose, and in the fullness of time, he will bring all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus Christ. In the meantime, He works out every single little thing according to His plan and His purpose. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. Not only does God have a plan, we're in at the consummation of all things, when He finally consummates the kingdom reality, and Jesus is enthroned in a way that we can taste and touch and feel and sense, all those things will happen according to the praise of His glory. If you're back on your notes, the first point was understand the kingdom in a way that makes you plead with God. How do these things happen? Jesus is established as king, yet why are all these Rwandans dying? 
Second point, understand the kingdom in a way that makes you look forward to his sovereign grace. Ephesians chapter 1, the whole focus of God's bringing all those things about and God's working out every little plan, good or bad, is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Why did God save you? Because he loves you? No. Does he love you? Yes. Why did he save you? He saved you so that he would be glorified. So that when people would see you in your sinfulness and they would see his redemption of you, God would be glorified. Go back to Daniel's prayer. We won't, we won't go to the verses particularly. But all through the prayer, Daniel confesses his sin. And he comes to the end of the prayer and he says, Oh God, we ask you to bring about these things, not for us, but for your glory. Remember your holy city. Remember Jerusalem. Look on the desolation that's here. And you bring about your glory. Everything in the Old Testament looked towards a coming kingdom. When Jesus came, he established the kingdom. But there's a sense in which his rule and his reign has not been consummated yet. Because at the end of the age, there will be a tremendous overturning. Death will die. And sickness will become terminally ill. And violence will be violated. And mistrust will be mistrusted. And every tear will be wiped away. You need to understand the coming of the kingdom in such a way that you plead with God when you see those things that are going on out there because you understand the reality. We do have the Holy Spirit and Jesus is on the throne. And those are present realities. But at the same time, you need to understand the kingdom in such a way that it makes you look forward to his sovereign grace, just like Daniel did. Daniel said, Oh, Father, forgive us and heal this land, not because of who we are, but for your glorious grace. And you need to look ahead, and you need to understand the existence of the kingdom today in such a way that you long, not for what you don't have, but what you've tasted in the person of the Holy Spirit is so sweet to you that you long for the final consummation of the kingdom when Jesus will return and there won't be any more Rwandans dying of cholera. You know, the Globe is at O.J. Simpson on the front page for more than they've ever had anything else on the front page in its history. And so far, they're making over $500,000 a week more than they average than they do on the average. Isn't that amazing? To take in the same newscast, O.J. Simpson and all that stuff, and the Globe making a half a million dollars a week, and 25,000 Rwandans are going to die of cholera. Isn't that just amazing? It's incredible. When we see those things, we need to understand the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and understand that it was established when Christ came, and yet there's a sense in which we look to the age to come and we hope that it's going to really be different then. God made the universe. It's like a grandfather clock. And, and he made it in such a way that he was a cog in there himself. 
And if you opened up the back and you looked at the workings of this grandfather clock, the main cog in the whole thing was man. And we were his vice regents. We were the ones who acted for God in the midst of the clock. The whole thing turned on us. And we took the vice out and we decided we wanted to be regent. And so the main cog messed up the whole works. And so just like the grandfather clock would do, if you get the main cog messed up, levers and springs and everything started busting out all over the place. And the whole grandfather clock began to smoke and to work its way down towards destruction. But God, in His infinite wisdom, has promised to use every single thing, good and bad, in the consummation of the kingdom to take that old grandfather clock and make it entirely new again. You need to understand the kingdom in such a way that it makes you plead with God. You need to understand the coming of the kingdom in such a way that you look towards His sovereign grace and you trust in His sovereign grace in the end times to make everything right. I promise you, when you get to the end, you will absolutely understand purpose in the death of every single Rwanda. Because God will make it all right. <clears throat> Finally, you need to understand the kingdom in such a way that it motivates you to trust Him daily. Um, if you go back to Daniel, in chapter 9, what Daniel says is, Lord, Jeremiah said it was supposed to be 77s, and Lord, we don't deserve it, but would you please forgive us? And an angel comes and he says, Daniel, you're so worthy that I've been sent to bring you a message. In fact, what was supposed to be 70 years has become seven times 70. Now, God didn't change horses in midstream. What he did was he applied the rule from, if you go to Leviticus chapter 26, you find there a description of what would happen when the people would turn from God. And it says there that if they didn't obey God, if they didn't worship Him as they were, that there would be seven years in which they would be punished. And if they didn't obey then, there'd be seven more years. And if they didn't obey then, there'd be seven more years. And if they didn't obey then, finally there would come the exile. And now God says in the midst of the exile, as Daniel has already told us, even in the midst of the exile, the people didn't respond. They didn't repent. And so God says... Daniel, I'm initiating the rule of the sevens. The people haven't repented, so instead of Jerusalem being restored at 70 years, it's going to be seven times 70 years. And then, Daniel, will come a time when there'll be an atonement for sin. And then we'll do away with the sacrifices and the offerings. Now, at the end beginning of verse 24, we have an explanation of the 77s. And the angel says, Daniel, for seven sevens, it's going to be seven sevens from the time of permission to go back before the temple is restored. Relatively short period. 49 years. Instead of the restoration happening after seven, there's going to be seven sevens 49 years and the temple will be restored. Daniel, then there's going to be 62 sevens, or 483 years. And at that time will be the coming of the kingdom. And then after the kingdom is inaugurated, Daniel, there'll be one last seven. At the end of that seven will be the end of the age, will be the closing of the old age. There's no gap here. 
Every seven fits right on top of the other. And sure enough, we find after about 49 years, relatively short period of time, the temples were built, the people come back to Jerusalem, but it's not the restoration. Roughly 483 years, we find the coming of the person of Christ. What's he doing? He's establishing the kingdom. The kingdom is now. Relatively short period after the coming of Christ, what do we find? Well, we find the Jews rejecting Christ, and we find the falling in, the implosion of the old system of sacrifices and offerings. In 70 AD, the temple was restored. The sacrifices and the offerings will never be established again. That's the end of the 77. What I want you to see, finally, is that you understand a kingdom in a way that motivates you to trust him every single day. What God is saying to Daniel is Daniel in the midst of those 483 years when it looks so hard, when it looks so complicated, when life looks so out of whack, you need to understand that the kingdom is coming. As we look back on that testimony, we need to understand that in person of Christ, the kingdom is here. And yet, in a sense, there's a greater reality that's yet to be consummated. We taste of the Holy Spirit, but we long to see Jesus. We do good works, and we trust and pray that they'll be effective, but we look for the final coming establishes the kingdom. If you are um, motivated by the presence of the kingdom and the rule of Christ, your heart longs to have that personal union with Him. If you don't know Him, all this kingdom stuff just sounds like a bunch of hodgepodge. And you go through the events of every single day, and if something good happens to you, you become more arrogant. And you feel like you need the kingdom less. And if something bad happens to you, you become more hardened. And you say, see there? There isn't anything good out there. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, when something good happens to you, you say, Father, I'm so thankful that I tasted a little bit of the kingdom. And if something bad happens to you, you say, Oh, Father, I'm reminded how much I desperately depend upon you. And I long for the coming of the kingdom. See, this is what we parents need to pray for our children. Because your children can listen to conversation about the kingdom of Christ, and it's irrelevant to them. And if good things happen to them, they can become more arrogant and think they don't need Christ. And if bad things happen to them, they can sit there and say, See there, God's not fair to me anyway. We need to understand the kingdom in such a way that every single day it motivates us, whether good or bad, to long for the coming of Christ. So John says, even so, Lord, come quick. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you speak to us from this passage. And when we're honest about the things that go on in our life, there is not possible for us to explain. And yet when we read something like Ephesians, we understand that you're involved in history, bringing every single thing, using every little part, good and bad, to bring all of history 
to the final consummation of all things. Our hearts are encouraged, but even more than that, Father, we want to live and taste in what's real, in what you're doing in the world today. We want to see you work by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to see you make a difference in the world today. Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ, and we pray that as we sing together, our hearts will be lifted up, and we will remember the rock that was hewn not by the hands of men, but the rock of ages who was cleft for us. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.